Good afternoon, everyone. How's everyone doing today? Sweet. Well, thank you for coming to yet again another Zurb Soapbox. We all want to hook our customers on our products. We all want to puppeteer the cognitive strings that advertisers have been leveraging for decades. We want to pull their triggers and get them addicted to our products. Our guest, Nir Ayel, has spent a career studying the behaviors that manipulate and motivate users. In fact, he's even written a book on it called Hook, How to Build Habit-Forming Products. And he's gonna tell us how to do just that. But please first give a warm welcome to our guest, Nir Ayel. How's it going here? Great, thanks for having me. Thanks everyone for being here today. Uh, you made it sound a little bit sinister, by the way. It's not quite so. Uh, <laughs> well, well, you know, I need to go I for the more dirty right now. <laughs> <laughs> Manipulate <laughs> and yeah. puppeteer, right? Uh, addiction. That's the worst one of all. It's not... <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I have to go for the sensationalism. You know, just, just, just to punch it up. And uh, we also have a hashtag if you want to live tweet this as well. Um, but before we get started, I kind of want to get into the secret origin of Nier. <laughs> you know, I like to do this with a lot of guests. Um, and you know, you immigrated here in the 80s. You started two startups. You got an MBA from Stanford. Uh, you sold one of your startups in 2011. And then you started studying ferociously how technology drives people. And how did those different experiences kind of lead you here today? And what were some of those observations that led you to say, there's something here about how habits inform how we build product? Yeah, so at my last company, uh, it was at the intersection of gaming and advertising. And these are two businesses that are really dependent on mind control to a mm -hmm. large degree about uh, shaping user behavior. Now who's using the sinister yeah. words, right? <laughs> and so at the intersection of those two industries, I saw a lot of experiments. I saw a lot of companies come and go. Some of them successfully changed user behavior and some of them didn't. And so I just started to collect these patterns and it was really fascinating to me to see uh, what made some of these companies so successful and some not so much. Um, and what I found was that in these two industries, these tools were used. I mean, there, there were practices around what changed user behavior effectively, but there wasn't, there wasn't really a, a, a names for all these things. Uh, companies would just kind of use these techniques because they worked. Uh, and then so after that company sold, I decided to figure out what I wanted to do next. And, um, I started kind of digging into academia and looking for what, what, can, what can the ivory tower kind of tell us around uh, about these consumer behaviors. And I came up with this hypothesis that the technologies that would change user behavior in the future would really be built around habits. That as the interface shrinks, as we go from desktops to laptops to mobile devices and now to wearables, that habits become more important because we just don't have the real estate to give people cues to action, the triggers that we once did, that we start to rely on products kind of you know, with little or no conscious mm -hmm. thought. And so I wanted to explore what was it about habits that, uh, that we could build into products. Right, what was the exact kind of spark there where you said, wait a minute, there's something here. Was it, mm -hmm. did you notice a particular product or a te particular technology mm -hmm. or just, what was that kind of aha moment? It wasn't so much an aha as it was a frustration that, you know, it, it, I, as, as an entrepreneur myself, I was 
we had this common experience of banging my head against the wall trying to figure out why aren't users doing the thing I designed for them. And, uh, and so after that last company sold, I, I wanted to kind of figure out, okay, what are the patterns here? Why were people, this was uh, the, the first company because it was at the intersection of gaming and advertising, we did a lot of work with social games back when the Facebook platform first opened up, right? There were thousands of games being made in everyone's basement. And um, I wanted to figure them out, right? Why, why were people uh, you know, collecting cows on Farmville and at the time throwing sheep at each other? And, why, and, and they seemed to be, you know, they, they seem to be compelled to do these behaviors that Why were, kind of were they doing like, that? <laughs> <laughs> Read the book. <laughs> It'll tell you all about it. Um, and so that's, I wanted to kind of see if there was a common design pattern. So when I looked to, I started to explore behavioral economics and found some fantastic research. Um, but I found that it lacked practical application, right? I, I, I loved this pop psychology, but how can I actually put it to work? And so I wanted to write a book for uh, designers for entrepreneurs that could actually uh, give them some tools for applying this psychology. Cool. And, and in terms of applying that psychology, I mean, uh, we were very interested here at Zurb uh, about your new book because we do also have a section that we just came out with called Design Triggers mm -hmm. where we do talk about the behaviors that actually motivate users or that designers can leverage to motivate users. And you argue about designing habits in your book. Mm -hmm. And why, why habits? And what are the triggers, or just at least some of your favorite triggers that kind of create those habits? Yeah. So it, you know, it used to be that uh, we built products based on what the hippo wanted. Does everybody know who the hippo is? The highest paid officer? Right? It used to be that, <laughs> hey, what should we build? What's the feature that we should make? OK, what, is, what does he or she say we should build? And that's what we should build. And then Silicon Valley evolved into customer development. Right now we have to listen to our customers. And that's great. Our products are so much better for it once we actually get out of the building like Stephen Blank tells us to do. And we start talking to people. But it turns out that there's all these things that customers are unable to articulate. right? Because they don't know that they need this particular product in their life. And so it turns out, you know, and many of the things that, that are on the, the Zerb Trigger site, these are things that people aren't able to articulate. Right? The, the, there's all these effects, there's all these heuristics that influence our behavior just as reliably, and yet people aren't able to articulate them. And so that's a large part of, of what I write about in the book, and particularly these patterns around user psychology uh, that help us form habits. We have, nobody uh, 11 years ago was saying, oh my god, I wish I had something to update my status before Facebook. Right? Nobody knew they had that need. Uh, and yet, by going through these, these steps that I, that I outline, uh, Facebook and products like Facebook have changed our habits so that today, you know, when we're without our technologies, we kind of feel a little stressed and lost and you know, hopeless for a minute there when we, when we don't have these technologies available to us. Right. And can you kind of take us, you, you mentioned Facebook, but can you mm -hmm. take us kind of like through a step of how Facebook has created this habit in us? What is it that they've been doing right to create that ongoing habit, that need for us to, and I'm sure some of you out in the audience are already doing it, updating our Facebook status, or even Twitter. Mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. we're, you know, we're live tweeting, we're you know, communicating in that manner. It's become this almost natural function of our daily lives. Yeah. So I, um, I started my exploration of habit-forming technology about two and a half years ago by asking myself a question that investors always asked me when I was out raising money. And that was, is your product a vitamin or a painkiller? 
Right? You've probably heard this question before. It's kind of a cliche now. And, and even if it's not from external investors, it's a lot of times company stakeholders. When they say, you know, hey, I want to build this feature into our product. OK, but is it a vitamin or a painkiller? Because people want to build painkillers. Right? These are things that, that, come, uh, that uh, our customers tell us they need. Stop my pain. Build this thing for me. But it turns out when we look at these habit-forming technologies, they actually don't start as painkillers. They start as vitamins. They start as nice-to-haves. Mm. Even though when you go out on Sand Hill Road and, and you know, an investor will tell you, nah, you know, we're going to pass it because this kind of seems like a vitamin. Well, all these products started as vitamins. Twitter and Facebook and Snapchat and Instagram, all of these things were toys. Uh, and that's kind of the, the design pattern that we see repeated time and again. Mm. We start using these things out of a pleasure-seeking behavior. But through repetitive use, by going through these four steps of the hook model, we begin to, to use them out of the alleviation of pain. Because part of the definition of a habit, these behaviors that we do with little or no conscious thought, is that a habit is when not doing something causes a bit of pain. It causes a bit of psychological stress. And our relief for that stress is the behavior, is that action. And right. so that's, these, that's done through these four steps of the hook model, which are a trigger, an action, a reward, and an investment. And that's the basic pattern that we see repeated time and time again. Now, is that a full circle thing, or is that a continuous thing? Mm -hmm. Can you just kind of take us through a little bit more and break down the hook model, which you do in the book, but can you just break sure. it down for the audience really quick so that we understand what those four quadrants are? Yeah. So um, real quick, this is a, a three-week class that I teach at the Graduate School of <laughs> Business at Stanford and at the Design School, but I'll give you kind of the very, very short synopsis. The Cliff Notes the version, Super right? Cliff Notes. <laughs> so a trigger is basically something that cues a behavior. And we have these two types of triggers. We have external triggers and internal triggers. External triggers are things in our, our environment where the information for what to do next is in the trigger itself. So you're all familiar with these things, right? A call to action or an authority figure, somebody telling you where to go, a word of mouth from a, from a friend of yours. All of these things are external triggers, right? The, the, the thing that tells you what to do next because the information is in the trigger. But what designers don't think about enough, I think, are the internal triggers. Now, internal triggers are things that cue action, but the information for what to do next is informed through an association in the user's head. Okay? And it turns out that these things can just as reliably cue our next action. So things like situations, routines, certain people or places, and most importantly, emotions. And not just emotions, negative emotions. So what we do when we feel lonesome, or bored, or fearful, or lost, these behaviors don't feel good. They're pain points. And psychologists call them negative valence states. And we seek to escape these negative valence states. And the relief, the solution for that pain point, is oftentimes our technologies. So identifying your user's internal trigger is paramount. We have to understand what the user's itch is even if they're not able to articulate it. After the, the trigger comes the action. The action is defined as the simplest behavior in anticipation of reward. So the act of scrolling on Pinterest would be an example of an action. Pushing the play button on YouTube would be an example of an action. The simplest behavior in anticipation of reward. So after the action comes the reward itself. Right? We have to scratch the user's itch. And rewards, uh, we typically find in habit-forming products, the ones that are able to create these new habits, are typically variable rewards. 
And variable rewards, if you, if you took Psych 101, you may remember from the work of B.F. Skinner, is all about having a bit of, uh, of mystery, right? A bit of intermittent reinforcement, as, as Skinner called it. And so that bit of mystery, that, that unknown, turns out to be highly habit-forming and actually can increase the intended behavior. And then finally is the investment phase. After the reward comes the investment. And this is, I think, the area that we have the greatest room for improvement when it comes to building habit-forming technologies, that a lot of companies are really focused about getting users uh, checked out, right? Use my product, get it to do what it needs to do, and they're gone. And it turns out that we should focus, if we're looking to build habits, we should focus on how to get users to check in, right? Not to build our sites to be super slicky, but how do we make them stickier? How do we make frequent opportunities to check in? And the investment phase is really defined by these small bits of work, these small bits of effort that users do to put something of value into the site, which increases their likelihood of the next pass. Something they put into the site to increase the likelihood of the next pass. So putting data into the site, content, accruing followers or reputation, all of these things increase our likelihood to come back to the site in the future. And then that's when it becomes a habit. Exactly. So through successive steps, through this, these four right. phases of the hook model, we begin to create these associations. We begin to associate board, solution becomes YouTube, for example. Right? Right. Whatever that might be. Cat videos. Exactly. Lots of cat videos, right, Gita? <laughs> <laughs> um, and that kind of brings us back to when you use the term vitamin and painkillers. Mm -hmm. And you kind of touch upon this in order to get that habit and to get into that hook model you talk a little bit about freemium. Mm. And can you just kind of go into how, because we, we've had a couple of soapboxes where people always ask, well, should I, should I provide my product for free mm. and, and then have them pay later? Yeah. But you say that's actually a good thing because then you create this habit. And I would, if you could just kind of briefly discuss yeah. how that happens. So I think a common mistake that I see is that um, companies put barriers between the recognized need, and the reward. And if you think about the nature of technology, I don't care if it's the cotton gin or the iPhone, the history of innovation is about shortening the distance between the trigger, right, the recognized need, and the reward. And so anything that's in the way is friction. It turns out that I think a lot of companies put the investment way too early. Right? So if you look at Twitter's history, in Twi Twitter in 2009, when I did the research for the book, I talked to a lot of the folks who helped design the Twitter homepage. There used to be a lot of friction to figuring out what you should do with Twitter. Right? They, they put a video on the site and a long description and all these buttons that took you to a different web page to tell you how great Twitter was. And then they decided, you know what? We're just going to get people to start using the product. Right? Get them to the reward as quickly as possible. And that's really when they started seeing that hockey stick growth in late 2009, 2010, or early 2010 was when they simplified the page as much as possible and made the investment come later. And whether that investment is money or social capital or effort, having the investment come after the reward, mm -hmm. after the user starts scratching that itch, is critical. So it's, it's not about uh, what you ask the user to do, it's when. It's got to be in that order of a trigger, action, reward, then the investment. Can you give us a couple more examples of how sure. that actually works? Pinterest. Anybody here use Pinterest? OK, good, a lot of folks. So on Pinterest, 
The first time you come to Pinterest, there's actually very little investment you have to make. Mm -hmm. The trigger is, if you haven't used the site before, it'll be uh, somebody telling you about the page through word of mouth, or maybe you've seen a picture that someone posted onto Facebook or Twitter. The action, the simplest action before a reward, is just to start scrolling. And it is so hard not to scroll at least once, right? You get to, you get to Pinterest, you got to scroll at least once. Why? Because there's this variable reward around all these interesting objects, right? So, so this is very similar to this on a slot machine, if you think about it, <laughs> right? It's variable rewards of information, right? By the way, you know what we call uh, Pinterest without variable rewards? Google search. <laughs> Google image search, I should say, right? Because Google image search, if you type in teddy bear, you'll get 50 images of brown plush toys because it's built to be accurate, not an entertainment medium. Whereas on Pinterest, if you type teddy bears, you'll see people with you know, teddy bear tattoos on an attractive person. You'll see a teddy bear made out of jelly beans. You'll see a painting of a teddy bear. You'll see all these highly variable uh, images. So the reward comes first. Then the investment is, would you like to join Pinterest? Right? Would you like to join the site? That's an investment. There's also the pin it button. Right? When, you, when you make the investment of putting that uh, pin it button on your Chrome, that's also an investment. Every time you pin, repin, follow, or comment, those are also forms of investment. All of these things that you do make it more likely for you to return mm -hmm. in the future. And when you get to that point where you are likely to return, when you have that habit, when is that moment where you can, where products can move from free mm -hmm. to paid? What's that kind of cycle there? How did mm -hmm. we get there? Because I'm sure that's a lot of people are thinking that in the back of the brain. Okay, great, habit. Now, how do I get money from them? Yeah. Right? Or how do I convert them? Yeah. By the way, not every business. I should I should say it as a disclaimer. Not every business needs habits. Habits are really hard to form. Let's let's be clear. Uh, that this habit forming technology and the, the methods that I talk about are not magic pixie dust that you can just sprinkle on any business and you probably shouldn't attempt to. Because if you can drive customers to, your, to use your product without habits, so if you're using marketing or search engine optimization or word of mouth, do that. That's great. But there's some business models that require what I call unprompted user engagement. So if you think about WhatsApp and Twitter and Facebook and Pinterest, these companies couldn't survive if they had to pay some kind of marketing uh, budget to get people to come back every time. They require habits for their business models to survive. And so those are the kind of businesses that, that need to form habits. And where it comes into you know, different uh, SaaS products that, that use habits, what we're seeing is that it's not just consumer web that's forming habits. We're seeing all kinds of enterprise products that depend on habit formation. So um, if you think about GitHub or Salesforce or Stack Overflow or um, Yammer. These products were used kind of at the, the, the user level first, and then when they gained critical mass, people, you know, there's that famous story of, uh, that Mark Andreessen told about GitHub where I think it was Bank of America or some big bank would, you know, sent them an email and said, where do, I, where do I pay you? Right? Half of my organization is, is using your product. Where am I supposed to send the check? And so it turns out that when products become habitual parts of users' day-to-day -day lives, whether it's in the enterprise or in consumer, uh, it becomes much easier to, to start charging, right? It start, we have much more elasticity in our pricing structure. And it seems like uh, games, mobile games, kind of have that cornered, right? They get mm -hmm. you hooked, and now you're paying in-app purchases to continue playing the game. For some people. It turns out it only takes about 4% of your user base. <laughs> if, if you look at um, um, 
uh, Candy Crush's data that they just released, you know, they're about to yeah. go IPO, and they, it actually turns out it's only 4% of their players that actually pay. Um, but yeah, those people really pay. <laughs> that, that's a very lucrative 4%. Yeah, that's right. That's right. <laughs> and, 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 and speaking of like the habits, and you kind of also touched upon this in, your, in the book, where you relate how you one, one day just changed your daily run mm. from the morning to the evening, mm -hmm. and it just kind of screwed you up. Mm -hmm. during the run and and habits are very once they're ingrained they're very hard to break but how do you kind of break those habits you know you kind of use the example of google and being in the book mm -hmm. but how do you get you know people to move from like coke to pepsi because yeah. once people have those habits they're very tenacious with them they're, they're just very hard to break that's right and that's one of the benefits of building a habit forming business is that it erects barriers to entry Right, so how many of you in the past 24 hours searched with Google? Just take a quick poll. Now, how many of you searched in the past 24 hours with Bing? <laughs> so, so Google must be way better, right? Because you're all using it because Google's so much better. Well, it turns out if you strip away the branding and you give people a head-to-head -head comparison where they don't know which search engine they're using, they can't tell the difference. Right? Google has lots of fancy, wonderful algorithms. They're geniuses. But you know what? Bing is almost the same. It's about a 50-50 choice preference, and they've done this study over and over again. Why are we all still using Google? And I use it every day as well. Because it's a behavior we do with little or no conscious thought. It's become a habit. We, you know, if, you, if I gave you Bing tomorrow to use, you'd say, oh, it just looks a little weird, and I don't like the way it's just, it doesn't, it doesn't work right, even though the results are just as good. Because you've formed a mental habit around the way this product is supposed to work. So you're, you don't even consider, could there be a better search engine? You're, you're fine with what you've got. You're fine with your habit. And so this is a, is a great example of how there's this huge barrier to a competitor taking your customer away once you've formed a habit. It's very, very difficult to do. And in fact, your product can't just be a little bit better. Your product has to be way better. And there's been, uh, there's been some hypotheses that it has to be 9x better to get people to switch their habits. Is there, is there an example of something that has been able to do that? where the product is invariably better mm. than something that is very s similar to it, has the nine times, and has been able to switch users. I, I think I can think of one off the top of my head, but I'll, what, I'll let what, you answer what the What comes question. to mind, I'm curious. Uh, I think Facebook, right? Yeah. You had like competitors. You had MySpace. You had Friendster. But yet, for some reason, Facebook was the one that got us to break away from those things. And I, yeah. showing my age, I had a MySpace page. And you know, I, I kind of refused to use Facebook for a while. And then I ended up using Facebook. But I mean, are there any other examples? Yeah, I think there's, I think there's a lot of these products. I mean, I, I, would, I would go back and say that you know, what Facebook replaced, um, you know, draw, drawing a comparison to see, OK, why did MySpace versus Friendster versus uh, Facebook win, that's almost outside the scope of pure engagement. Because let, let's be clear, engagement and all the stuff I teach in my book and in my workshop, that's one piece of the puzzle. right? Let's be clear about that. Engagement is one pillar. You also need monetization, and you also need growth. You need these three pillars of monetization, engagement, and growth to have a successful business. So you can have a super successful, engaging product, but if it's not growing, and if you have no strategy to ever monetize it, you got a problem. Um, so each one of those is necessary but not sufficient. And there's a lot around the history of why Facebook won versus MySpace right. that has to do with you know, growth. It was all kinds of things that they did well for that. But I think if you go back a step further, what Facebook replaced, what did Facebook actually replace the, the first, like the early days? It replaced the Facebook, right? When I went to college, everybody got this little piece of paper book 
that had everybody's picture. And it was part of our routine that you know, every other night of the week, OK, where are the cute girls? And who, you know, who, who do I need to meet? And who do I know? And who are my friends? That's how we used the Facebook. And we had it at, I think, most colleges had this. So that was the behavior that they started to replace um, to bring that existing habit online. And then, of course, it became much more than that. Right? It became about photos. It became a communication medium. But if you think about it, all of these things are existing behaviors. They're existing habits. What changed was the interface opportunity. So whenever we see a shift in interface, whenever uh, the, the way we, we work with technology changes radically, that's where new habits, uh, new habit-forming technology have their potential. Uh, and so that's, that's a dedicated chapter in the book to where do you search for habit-forming uh, opportunities. And that's a, that's a big opportunity whenever there's a shift. And we're seeing that shift now, right, as we're going from mobile devices to kind of uh, biometrics and, and wearable technologies, going, there's going to be a new reshuffling of the deck that's going to enable us to do all kinds of new habits and behaviors that are enabled by this interface change. And, and what is your prognostication on what some of those changes are going to be? I, so I write what I do uh, for two reasons. So if you look at my writing, there's, it's kind of 50-50. It looks a little schizophrenic, actually. Half of it is about how to build habit-forming technologies. And um, that's what I, I want to teach people how to do, is how to build these technologies so that we can live happier, healthier, uh, more connected lives. I really think that we can use technology to, to live better. And I think biometrics are a great example of that. I think there's all kinds of opportunities that are going to um, make that distance between the need and the reward much, much shorter by telling us how we can eat better, how we can spend better, how we can communicate better. All kinds of new opportunities are going to open up. The other half of the, of, of the puzzle, the other side of the coin, is that I think the world, as Paul Graham said, is becoming a potentially more addictive place. And you used that word addiction uh, before, and, and I think it's worth commenting on it, that addiction has a very different definition from habits. Because addictions are always bad. Addictions are always self-defeating. Whereas habits, we can have good habits and we can have bad habits. But I think as consumers and users, and the other half of all my writing is not only how to build habit-forming technologies, but how to prevent unwanted manipulation from habit-forming technologies. Because I think you know, the ability to focus, the ability to concentrate in this world of really good products, right? <laughs> like things are better than ever. If you think about, you know, the, the, it just comes to mind that Netflix just uh, had the, the, the new episode of House of Cards, right? And everybody's binge watching now, right? Because these shows have gotten really good over time. They've figured out how to keep us super engaged. And the same with the products we use. These products are getting better and better. The world is becoming a more addictive place. And so I think we have to understand how these products hook us in order to be able to break those hooks. Just as much as we want to build the hooks to help people, we need to be able to control these hooks in our own lives so that we can regain our focus. That's like what you say in, in the book, you know, uh, their habits are superpowers. Mm -hmm. and if used for evil, <laughs> they can really be used for evil. Yeah. Right? I mean, that's a big, if, if there was an aha moment for me, right. it was um, when I couldn't stop, right? When I was on a Saturday using my phone as opposed to being with my daughter. What, what's going on there? Why is that happening? And I'm, I'm, I'm guessing I'm not the only one that, that this is a struggle for a lot of people in Silicon Valley around how do we stop? Right? Mm -hmm. How do we create that space so that we can regain perhaps what we've lost? Now, I'm not a Luddite. 
I love technology. I think it provides way more goods than bads. But we're the guinea pigs, right? Like, let's, let's be clear here. Just like that our great grandparents' generation was a guinea pig for cigarettes, right? Ronald Reagan used to dress up like a doctor and tell you that cigarettes were healthy for you. <laughs> <laughs> That's happening to us, because we don't exactly, I mean, it's really, it's really um, idealistic to think that we can understand the bads of a technology so we shouldn't build it. That's not the way it works. First you build it, society adopts it, and then we adjust and figure out what the bads are along with the goods. And that's the phase we're going through right now. We're still trying to figure out how these technologies affect us and perhaps how they negatively affect us. Right, especially with wearable technology and all that. And yeah. We are now, definitely now, the guinea pigs. Just to be clear, I think there's way more goods than bads. But we do have to be conscious of the right. bads. Right. Uh, I think it's, it's societal change, right? I think, uh, I think I remember reading something or having a conversation with someone that, about uh, Google Glass and how it's like, it's an interesting idea. Not sure if society is up, caught up to mm. where that would be something socially acceptable. Mm -hmm. So what you're talking about, I think, is also having the societal kind of cultural shift to play into all of that as well. Kind yeah. of like with cigarettes, right? Yeah, they that's were right. everywhere, and now they're dwindling. Right? Yeah, yeah, that's right. But it's less than 10% of the population that, that yeah. smokes it, which is incredible because it was the the overwhelming majority of people right. who used to smoke. Right. Yeah. I remember working in a building that had cigarette uh, holders mm. along the walls. <laughs> so, yeah, that's how old I am. Uh, <laughs> shut up, all of you that work with me. <laughs> but I, I, another thing that I actually do want to uh, touch upon, because you had a recent article in TechCrunch, uh, Why Fads Fade, The Inevitable Death of Flappy Bird. I think this is something also important in the minds of, uh, of people who are designing products, is okay, great. I got them hooked. It's a habit, mm -hmm. but habits change over time. And the rewards aren't the same. You use the metaphor in the book of Breaking Bad, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. or even like House of Cards, right? Mm -hmm. I finished House of Cards, and I'm not likely to rewatch it uh, and get the same thrill as the first go through. Um, so how do, we, how do we keep changing along with our audience or our users and those habits? What do we do to keep a product going mm -hmm. and not simply fading away like uh, Flappy Bird. Well, he ended it before it's or time. choose but, a different game, right? Yeah. Super Mario Brothers. Yeah, right. Super or Mario Brothers Mario. or Angry Birds yeah. or, or what, whatever yeah. the new hotness So that, that's a great question. There's, um, so I talk about variable rewards <clears throat> and how important those are in, in changing user habits. But then a lot of people will think, well, look, if variable rewards are so great, right, that element of mystery, that, that, that uh, unknown is so enticing, why aren't we all still playing these same video games, right? What, what happened to Super Mario Brothers and Pac-Man and, and uh, Farmville? Remember Farmville? Man, everybody was playing Farmville in 2008, right? It was the fastest growing game in history at that time. Well, it's, it, let, let's think about Farmville for a minute. So Zynga releases Farmville. At the time, they were at, at one point valued at a, as a $10 billion company. They released Farmville, fastest growing game in history of all, at that point. And then after Farmville, what, what came next? What was the next game? Cityville, I think. And then Chefville. And then Frontierville. And then Farmville 2. And then Loveville. And users started figuring out, wait a minute. This is the same damn game. It's the same frames again and again. It's the same mechanics. So what was once variable became predictable. And that's an, that is a demonstration of what I call finite variability. So an experience that decreases in variability, the more you engage with it, 
is finite variability. So for example, with, when it comes to media, right? You read a book, you watch a movie, how many of them do you actually engage with more than once? Once we know the happy ending, once we know how, how things wrap up, how the mystery is resolved, very few shows, very few movies or books do we actually engage with again. Do we read again or do we watch again? Very, very few. As opposed to things that are infinitely variable, so think about social media, right? Things that engage our friends. Think about a, a product like WhatsApp, right? Just got bought for $19 billion. Why are these things, why do these things engage us for longer periods of time? Well, because they engage our friends. And our friends are always changing. Right? A product like Facebook or Twitter or WhatsApp, our friends are going on trips, they're having babies, they're taking pictures of their puppies, they're posting jokes. There's a much higher degree of variability. And so they keep us engaged for longer. So that's the difference between finite variability and infinite variability. And it's not a, it's not a judgment call that products with finite variability are bad businesses. Not at all. You can build great businesses with finite variability. But you have to set up your business accordingly. You can't just be a company with one hit if you have a finite variable product. You have to set up a studio model, right? just like Hollywood does, where you're constantly cranking out new content. Even though each specific piece of content has finite variability, you're constantly inventing the new. Which is what video, uh, the gaming industry has capitalized Some Some companies, right? right? There's this right. big question right now with, with Candy Crush, whether is it just Candy Crush, or can they start cranking out right. more and more games? And right. some companies can, and some don't. Yeah. <laughs> and some become Zynga. Uh, no, just kidding. Uh, but I, I do want to well, thank you for answering all of my questions. We have uh, time here, and I want to make sure that we open it up to audience questions. And we've got a large audience here, so I want to get that process going. So who has the first question for Nier? Gary. Yeah. I mean, if you want a demonstration of habits at work, if you want a demonstration of the value of habits, what better example than, than WhatsApp? I mean, that's, that's the reason that company was worth $19 billion. 74% of people who install WhatsApp use it every day. That's all you need to know. <laughs> and that there's 500 million of them. That's enough to be worth to justify something like that price. Yes, in the back. Um, so my question is around uh, what the, how do I use it for my own benefit? Yeah. And uh, one different way seems to be your approach. And uh, DJ talked about the time habits mm -hmm. is around the, the variables as well. Right? Mm -hmm. So, um, and also with the trigger, right? DJ talked about, you know, about okay, take an existing habit and you know, use that as a trigger. Um, so in terms of variables, Yeah. So by the way, I'm, I'm kind of a disciple of BJ's. Uh, I love his work. And actually, the action phase of the hook is straight out of his, his uh, research. I mean, it's, it's really all about B equals MAT and how do you make experiences simpler to encourage the behavior. Um, 
so we're, we're absolutely aligned. Now, what, what FOG focuses on is individual actions. When it comes to habits, when it comes to these behaviors with little or no conscious thought, you need that oomph. You need something to, to get you to want to open an app because you're not quite sure what's going to be there. And so that's when it comes to product design. And, and a lot of folks will focus on personal habits. And that's, that's not really my area of expertise. I really focus on technology habits and, and how products can form habits. And it turns out that we find time and time again that the products that, that form these habits all have this, this element of mystery time and time again. So for example, uh, uh, Stack Overflow. How many of you use Stack Overflow or familiar with it? So for those of you who don't use it, it's the world's largest technical question and answer site. 5,000 questions every single day get answered. If you stop somebody on the street and say, hey, I'm going to start this business where people are going to answer basically technical documentation questions, what do you think? Do you think people will do it for free? They'll think you're nuts. Why the hell would I do that? It's work. And yet, when I talked to Jeff Atwood, one of the founders of Stack Overflow, and I asked him, you know, tell me about the site, and I did my research, they have to actually put in breakers into the site that if you use Stack Overflow over a certain amount of hours per week, you can't accrue any more points. That's how much people use the site. I mean, they've had to like reduce the amount of time people use, you know, put disincentives to, overuse, to not overuse the site. Why to, is that? They have to use negative triggers. Exactly, exactly. So why do they do that? What, why, what makes Stack Overflow so engaging to folks? Well, when you post something to Stack Overflow, what happens to your answer? It's voted up and down, exactly. Right? You get an upvote or a downvote. And there's mystery there. There's variability around what are people, are people going to vote, upvote my answer, downvote my answer? What's the commentary going to be? There's a lot of variability. Not only that, what happens when I get an upvote? I get points. And from those points, I get badges. But these aren't badges that I you know, pimp my profile. That's not what they're about. These badges confer status from the people whose opinions I care about, my tribe. Right? The people whose opinions I care about. These aren't just you know, made up badges. They literally confer tribal status, if you will. That's what I, I call that type of reward, a tribal reward. And so that has a huge element of variability to it. And, and it's a huge driver of why people continue to engage. Yes? You started off talking about fears, but just now what I heard was you pushed around this desire driven instead. Mm. How's that spectrum operating? Yeah, so um, what we see in this journey from vitamins to painkillers is that products start out as pleasure seeking behaviors. We're enticed by the pleasure seeking behavior. As we invest in these products, they become pain alleviators. They become obligations. They become things we have to do. And that's kind of the journey that I describe in this book, that the things that we form habits around, we start because they're fun, they're engaging, but the more we go, we, the more we go through these four steps of the hook model, we invest more effort into them, and it becomes something we, we become obligated almost to do. Yeah. And so, that, but just to finish the point, the ultimate goal we don't start with the internal trigger. We have to understand the internal trigger we're going for, but it's about creating that association. The successful completion of a, of a habit, of forming a habit, is when we can associate our solution with the user's problem. So every time I feel bored, every time I feel lost, lonesome, whatever it might be, the solution is this, this product. That's kind of the ultimate goal. And that, again, I think we can use that for good. Right. I think we can use that for awesome Not for things. addiction. Not, definitely not for addiction. And there's a lot about addiction and, and the psychographic profile of who gets addicted. It turns out it's 
it's actually not as big of a problem as, as we might think, even though it's very hard to stop. It turns out that there's actually a very small proportion of the population that literally gets addicted. Not that we shouldn't do something about it, and I think companies have a new responsibility to do something about it, but for the majority of people, it's, it's, it can be a healthy habit, right? So that um, I'm doing things that help me when I'm feeling these feelings as opposed to things that are just time wasters, for example. We got a question right here in the front row. Yeah. So you're sort of talking about users as sort of a blanket group in terms of how you target them and build habits with them, but the differences in people's building of habits, how much money they're going to end up making you. So is there some more refinement you can do in terms of building habits for specific users? <coughs> Yeah, yeah. Um, so I look at it uh, in this process called habit testing, which was um, really informed by the research I did with looking at Twitter and a few other companies and talking to some of the people who helped build those experiences, that what these companies did uh, looked something like this, which is this process of habit testing that I describe in the book, is around these three steps of identify, codify, and modify. What you want to find is who are the, the people who are currently most engaged with your product? And there's a whole process to get there. But let's say you have a product, and let's say we're looking at meeting this, what Fred Wilson calls this 5% bar of people who are using the product habitually. Right? So whatever habitually means to you. If your product is something that people use every day, once you're getting to that 5% level, seems to be a tipping point, what we want to do is to identify those people, codify the steps they took in using the product, right? what was the path that those users took? And then we modify the experience to reshape the path. So what, what Twitter found out is that the people who were using the product habitually, using it every day, that five, those five percenters, were people who immediately followed other people. That's what they saw was in the habit path, was if you followed folks, you were much more likely to become a habitual user. Well, guess what happens when you sign up to, to Twitter today? The first thing they have you do is follow somebody. You're going to follow one of the top people on Twitter. You're going to follow Oprah. You're going to follow one of the celebrities. Just follow somebody, because it turns out that that's one of the behaviors that, that they found that helps turn people into habitual users. So it's identify those users, uh, codify the habit path, and modify the experience so that others can follow that same path. Yeah. yeah, it's a great question. Generally, no. And the reason I say no is because think about the way decisions are made top down. It's the antithesis of a habit. A habit is, is defined as a behavior that's done with little or no conscious thought. Well, committees that buy stuff are all about overthinking things to death. <laughs> so these aren't things that are done out of a habit. They're done with a lot of conscious thought. And so you don't require a habit to sell into a committee right, into the IT department or HR, whoever you're selling your technology into. You just don't need habits. You need other things. You need other uh, uh, ways to, to get them to make the purchase. However, 
if that product needs to become a habit someday for the end user, then this is important. Maybe not for the sales process, but if, if whether people use the product or not is actually important, not always, right? If you buy some hardware equipment, it may not, you might not need direct user engagement with that product. But if your product eventually does need to turn into a habit, then this is just as important as it is for the consumer side. I can't speak on their behalf, for sure. <laughs> I don't know what they're trying to do. Is it another model to get a good Well, I think this might be uh, above my, my ability to predict. I, I, you know, I, I would take a guess um, that they're trying to appeal to a wider audience uh, of people who, <clears throat> wait, let me back up. I think Facebook sees that they have a problem around their variable rewards. And that problem has to do with the signal-to-noise ratio. That Facebook is becoming increasingly cluttered with stuff people don't care about. And so when that happens, and it turns out the, the, the studies show us it's about three to one. You need one thing to be interesting for every three things that are meh. And that seems to create this ratio of this excitement around searching and searching and never done searching, looking for the next reward. But when that ratio gets too low, when there's too much clutter, it's not rewarding anymore. It's junk. It's crap. And so people become less engaged. And so my guess is they're trying to figure out how can we create a product for the people who find news, which, man, news is all about variable rewards, right? If you think about it, like the functionality of news, what you're trying to get out of news, if we're really honest with ourselves, it's entertainment. It's to alleviate boredom, right? That's what that's kind of what news is about. <laughs> you know, it's, it's this entertainment. Like, does it really affect your day-to-day -day life? It's really about a boredom alleviator for a few minutes, just like it is for people who like to track sports scores and the stock market. It's this variability of what's going to happen today. And so I think they see this opportunity in knowing that news can be a great element for certain uh, portions of the population to insert more relevant variable rewards. That would be my guess from a distance. <laughs> cool. We have time. For, ah, yes, there we go. Hmm. So, um, you know, you, you probably have all heard this, uh, this common knowledge around it takes 60 days to form a habit, 90 days to form a habit, 33 days to form a habit, right? There's like this magic number. Turns out it's totally not true. There's no, <laughs> there's no magic number for how long it takes to form a habit. It turns out that it's uh, based in large part to how salient the reward is. Uh, so that the thing, so there's no... There's no magic number I can give you for when people will form a habit. The science just doesn't show that there is that kind of magic number. It's very contextually specific to the experience you're building. What we do know, what the science does show us, is that frequent is better. Frequency is always, the more frequent the behavior, the more likely it is that you'll form a habit around it. And so we see this in, in, in many studies have shown that, uh, for example, there's this great study last year at Oxford that uh, tried to get people to form the habit of flossing their teeth. And 
across the board, the folks who flossed more often were the ones who kept the behavior 6, 12, 18 months into the future. And not only that, it turned out that if the behavior occurred uh, in a span of time longer than one week, it became almost impossible to form the habit. So that's a big takeaway. If you're building a product, if you're building an experience that does not have the user engage within the span of a week's time or less, you will have a difficult time forming a habit. Not impossible, but very difficult to change user behavior if they're not engaging within a week's time or less. And of course, think of the products that you use every day, right? The products that have formed habits. How often is Twitter and Facebook and Instagram, how often are these things used by habitual users? Every day, right? Intraday, multiple times per day. And so that's the best rule of thumb that I can give you, is that the more frequently someone uses a product, the more likely they are to actually form a habit. And the more likely you are to someday actually be able to extract revenue. <laughs> <laughs> One, our last question. Yeah, yeah. When you're trying to form these habits. So um, I talk about that there's three types of variable rewards. Rewards of the tribe, <coughs> rewards of the hunt, and rewards of the self. And when, um, what you'll see across the board, the products that you find most habit forming, that most engage us, have one or more of these variable reward types, tribe, hunt, and self. Um, and we don't have too much time to go into each one, but big picture, rewards of the tribe are around things that feel good from other people. Rewards of the hunt are about material rewards or information rewards. And then rewards of the hunt are about the search for mastery, consistency, competency, things that have a variable component but are intrinsically motivating. Right? So finishing your last email or you know, clearing your to-do list or getting to the next level in a game, these are things, examples of rewards of the self. Tribe, Tribe hunt, and self. Um, and so what we find is when products don't have this critical mass, and, and don't have enough people responding to give people frequent feedback from a social reward, from a reward of the tribe, they have to have some kind of other reward. Mm -hmm. right? So you might use rewards of the hunt to have a search for information to use the site. Or you might have rewards of the self around some kind of completion mechanic to start using the site until you build up that critical mass. Now there's this other problem around network effects, which is where you see you know, when nobody's at the party, then nobody wants to be at the party. Right? So as opposed to when, when, when everybody's at the party, well, then more people want to join the party. So this network effect problem, there's always a chicken or the egg problem. And in my experience, I've only seen two ways to fix the chicken or the egg problem when it comes to network effects. One is to seed the community. So what Twitter did was to get Robert Scoble and Michael Arrington, a bunch of technorates, using the site, pushing out content, and they didn't really care who, who else was using it because their little community was using it, their little community of influences, influencers. So they seeded the community, and then other people wanted to join in. So it just started from a small base. That's one way. You seed the community. The other way is to make the experience satisfying in single-player mode. So that even if no one else is at the party, I'm having fun on my own. But then if other people join in, it gets better. 
right? So that's where you would use one of the other rewards, one of the other variable reward types, like rewards of the hunt or rewards of the self, to make it useful in single player mode. Okay. And um, should I tell them about the? Yeah. Oh, okay. uh, we have okay. One more question, and that's <laughs> our last one. She she's getting under the wire there. I saw her just kind of sheepishly raise her hand. Mm. So if you look at email, for example, which I think is actually one of the mothers of habit-forming technology, it's very hard to stop using. And it's uh, <laughs> talking about, by the way, you talked about uh, pain alleviating versus pleasure seeking. Remember when email was, was fun? Anybody remember that? <laughs> like, maybe, this is, maybe some of you might be too young for this, but like, oh my god, America Online and Prodigy was so cool. You could say it's amazing. <laughs> What was the last time you thought email was fun? I use email, I don't know about you all, it's a pain alleviator, right? I gotta use it so I can get or leave the <laughs> relieve the obligation of why I use this product. The satisfaction of zero inbox. Oh, you, you, you get that? Wow, that's amazing. <laughs> this mythical place of inbox zero. But we use it out of obligation, right? It's become something we have to do. And think about the variable rewards around email. Tribe, right? It's people whose opinions we care about. Hunt. It's this search for information, and it's always variable. What's going to be in that next message? And self. It's this clearing mechanic of, did I finish it? Right? Did I get to inbox zero? Or did I, I'm just happy if I can check my messages, let alone answer them. <laughs> so there's all three of these, tribe, hunt, and self. And so the more of those variable reward types that a product has, the better. That's very rare, though. Usually a, a product will be lucky if they can get one or two of those variable reward types working properly. Cool. Well, thank you, everyone. Nir, I know you uh, brought some books. I did bring some books. Uh, happy to, to sign books if anybody's interested, and I'll, I'll be right over here. And I'm happy to answer other questions. Yes. Thank you, thank you very much, Nir. I appreciate you, thank you. coming. Thanks. Thank you, everyone, for Thanks. coming by. <laughs> <laughs>